Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. Those of you who know me well will know that this title, Expectations, and the passage that we're going to look at combines two of my irritating pet hates. My one pet hate is Palm Sunday. Not that I hate Palm Sunday. I love this passage. We're going to look at the passage that is connected to Palm Sunday now. But the good news is we are nowhere near Palm Sunday. As I am speaking, we're just in November. And that taps into what I feel is unhelpful and helpful. I sometimes think that when you think a certain passage has to be done the same weekend or the same month every year, it loses its power. And I'm hopeful that looking at this story at a different point in the year, maybe in the approach to Christmas, uh, actually gives it a new light. And I think that's refreshing and helpful. My second pet hate is expectations. So often the same action invokes a different response in people because it's met their expectations, didn't meet their expectations or exceeded their expectations. I may say a kind word to someone because one person was expecting far more than that, they're disappointed. I may say the same word to somebody else who expected nothing and they feel grateful. And it seems to me that very often those of us who struggle the most with life do so because we have unhealthy expectations. We have high expectations of others or of ourselves. And we are constantly frustrated or disappointed or feel let down or feel angry. Whereas perhaps those of us who have lower expectations are constantly surprised and encouraged and feel grateful and therein lies, I think, one of the great divides. So this passage brings them all together. Jesus has been uh, raising Lazarus. He's been um, shown an incredible expression of worship and gratitude by Mary. And we pick it up in John 12, verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out where Jesus was, uh, where Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd had come for the festival, had heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. John 12, verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So, Palm Sunday in the middle of November, just as it should be. What does this passage mean for us? A number of things, just as a little bit of background to, to kick us off. Palm branches were a symbol of national, um, of national, a national symbol for the, for the Jewish nation at that time. It was something that symbolized who they were. And the laying of those branches on the ground in front of Jesus was a, a kind of akin to us putting down a red carpet. They were creating a pathway for Jesus to not tread in the soil and the muck and the dirt, but to be raised and elevated. Um, so it was a special symbol of saying the nation's leader is come, a bit like a red carpet. And they shouted Hosanna, which literally means save us now. It's quite an imperative, save us now. 
And then there is a quote from Psalm 118, which was considered a, a popular messianic psalm. Remember, the Messiah is a concept where the Jewish people believed that God would send a new king of Israel, a new king just like David, who would restore all the geographical and political boundaries that David and Solomon had brought in under the, the, the great kingdom before it divided into two, Israel and Judah. So he quotes, they quote Psalm 118, Lord save us, which is literally Hosanna. Lord grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they compound it. Blessed is the king of Israel. They are calling him the Messiah. It's absolutely overt and clear. And this is the final straw for those uh, leaders who we just heard were plotting to kill Lazarus as well. There it is in bold black and white. These people believe that Jesus is the king and they are welcoming him into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry. And that's a threat to them, which is going to unfold over the rest of the book of John, leading to the crucifixion. We're now at the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life. And this triumphant entry needs to be put alongside the description of it. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. It's a deliberate choice. Jesus goes and finds the donkey. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's enacting a verse from Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9. And John quotes part of it. He says this in John 12, 15. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Do not be afraid. Your king is coming, but he's on a donkey. And Jesus is deliberately drawing attention to this prophecy in Zechariah. And John invites us, I think, to go and look at that passage because he doesn't quote it all. He leaves out bits. And I want to explore the whole passage and see what we learn from what Jesus is alluding to. And John is saying, go back and explore. So if we look at Zechariah and 9 and verse 9, we read these words. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Zion is the name of the mount on which the temple lies. It's a, a name that became synonymous with Jerusalem. It becomes a symbol of heaven. It is the place of God's presence. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Interesting that... This bit doesn't have the do not be afraid. John wants them to, to understand the do not be afraid. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, says Zechariah, lowly, riding on a donkey. Spells out the implication of the donkey, and it's a, a massive shock. Kings don't ride donkeys. Behold, your king comes to you, not in a limo, not in a Bentley, not in a Rolls Royce, but riding a 50cc moped. What does it mean? Well, again, we see that the, the king is described as righteous. He has done no wrong and he is bringing salvation. Your king comes to you righteous, having salvation. And I want to ask three questions to explore for a moment or two. And this is the first question. What was the salvation that Jesus was bringing? 
And then Zachariah spells that, and we'll come back to that question in a moment. Zachariah spells it out. He says he was lowly. The salvation that he's bringing is lowly. It's in humility. It's not in pride. It's not in triumph. It's not in power. It's not a statement of, 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 um, of military strength. It's on the most stupid and ignorant animal. Coming on a donkey. He comes in weakness, not force. And, and Zechariah wants us to really get this message. He's coming lowly. It's such a contrast. The king comes lowly, humbly, weakly, embarrassingly, without power. So that leads us to the second question, that why was salvation to come this way? And then in verse 10, it goes on. He says, I will take away the chariots from Epiphram and from the war horses, war, war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations. So this Messiah, this king who is coming in humility is coming to bring peace and explicitly to get rid of violence. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Some people see in this phrase, the river, the idea of from the Garden of Eden to the ends of humanity, the ends of creation, uh, because Eden talks about this river. It's clear, this rule of peace is to be over all the earth. And so that is the last question I want to ask. What is the role and rule of this Messiah. And verse 11, the final part I want to draw to your attention, he says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. There's a sealed promise to come through the blood of the covenant. What we come to understand is through the blood of Jesus. Now we look back at the end of the cross and at the end of the resurrection and we understand. John spells it out for us in John 12, 16 that they didn't understand. He says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So let's just ask those three questions. What was the salvation that Jesus was bringing? Why was it to come on a donkey and lowly and in humility? And what does that say then about the rule of the Messiah? What then was the salvation? We start with the expectation. The expectation of those who were putting their palm branches down in front of the king, who were making a royal carpet and declaring that the king of Israel had entered Jerusalem. Their expectation was a political salvation from oppression. Their expectation was that he would remove the Romans and that he would restore the might and power of the empire of the people of God. And that their salvation would be physical. They would be physically saved from their difficulty. That was their expectation. And that is why they cry out, crucify him, crucify him within a matter of days. That is why they call for Barabbas. Because what they expected doesn't happen. And they are disappointed, bitterly disappointed. He does not overthrow the Romans. He does not bring about a great vanquishing of evil. He does not punish the sinners. He does not um, bring about a kingdom of power and glory throughout the earth. 
He doesn't inaugurate the greatest empire that humanity has ever seen. So the reality of the salvation is different. And in the beginning, John is very clear about what that salvation is. He talks about Jesus bringing an eternal salvation, saved from eternal death. There's so many passages in John that we've looked at already that that spell this out. And perhaps the most famous is John 3.16, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The first stage of this salvation that Jesus is bringing on a donkey is salvation for eternity. It is salvation not in this life simply, but from the death that is to come. But we also understand as the New Testament unfolds and as people understand what Jesus has done after he's risen from the dead, that his salvation was spiritual, that he was saving people from that uh, separation, alienation, estrangement from God, that the, the, the consequence of sin, the consequence of failure. Ephesians, uh, Paul says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded. And this is what Jesus saves people from. He saves us from being on the outside of God, being unable to come close to God because of our sinfulness. Remember the temple had these different courts and the people were way on the outside and Jesus comes to save us from being on the outside. He tears the curtain and says, I want you to come into the very heart and the very presence of God and to be accepted as my children and to be loved and to know you're loved and to be free from sin. And so the salvation is not just for the future life after death, but it's for now of an experience and a relationship with Jesus that was not possible without his salvation. And this salvation is a salvation to come and follow him, to be in relationship with Jesus and to live a Jesus-like life, which transforms the meaning of life. And there is a danger sometimes that Christians stop at this point of saying, well, Christianity is about the future and it's about having a relationship with God. Yes, it is, but it's also about a lifestyle now of obedience, of copying, of following Jesus, of being a disciple. Peter says that we've been redeemed from an empty way of life. The empty way of life was the the way of selfishness, self-centeredness. So that leads us to conclude that the salvation that Jesus was bringing was not primarily physical, political. It was not about the physical circumstances. It was rather about a, a, a relationship, a discipleship that would last into eternity. And that that was to give the strength to deal with the physical. That he was wanting to equip them with a way of life, a way of living, a way of being, a way of knowing God that would help them deal with the Roman Empire and not to be overcome internally and emotionally by it. He was not taking the Romans away. He was equipping them to deal with the Romans in their heart and mind. So what was the salvation that, uh, and why was it to come this way? Well, the expectation of the salvation was that the Messiah would come and punish the enemies of God and punish those who are sinful, and punish those who do wrong. The expectation that this Messiah would, would, would bring a sword and that he would violently overthrow those who stood against what God wanted and that he would create a dominant culture of, of where, where God's people would reign 
and that this would be earthly. This would be in Jerusalem and centered in Jerusalem and moving out. That was the expectation. Sometimes I think there are still Christians who are expecting that. And the king has come on a donkey. He's come deliberately in humility. Because the king coming wants to be merciful, not punishing. He wants to save the sinner, not to throw them out. He's coming gently. He's not coming on a war horse. In fact, Zechariah says that the war horses are going to be removed. It's not about conquering someone. It's not about um, forcing people to do things. It's an invitation. It's an offer. And in fact, Jesus uses that language of invitation to banquets and so on. He doesn't force people. He comes gently, lowly, humbly on a, do- on a donkey. Because the salvation that he's offering can be rejected. It can be overlooked. It can be dispensed with. People can say, I don't want that king. And that's what follows through through the rest of the week where the, the people say, we don't want that. And rather than them all be struck down with lightning, God allows them to reject the Messiah and to place him on a cross. Because the salvation that is to come, that comes with a king who rides a donkey, is a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a place. It's an attitude. The kingdom of God is an invitation to let God reign in our lives. It is not a place that you can go to and say, here, God is in charge. And it is sealed through the blood of the Savior, not the blood of the defeated. And that's the fundamental difference between the expectations of the Messiah. They thought the Messiah would come on a chariot, on a war horse, and the blood that was to be shed was the blood of those who had stood against what God wanted. And the reality is the blood that was to be shed, the blood of the promise, the blood of the covenant, was the blood of the Saviour, was the blood of the suffering servant, was the blood of Jesus that cleansed and sanctifies and save. So what is this rule of the Messiah? Well, the expectation, as we've already said, was that it would be external, that it would be geographical, that it would be for Israel, and that it would conquer. That the reality of the salvation that is brought in by a king who deliberately Uh, prophesies and then enacts that prophecy who deliberately chooses a donkey having warned and prepared people for it so that people see the symbolism and go ah that's what's happening the reality is the salvation was internal and God saves us Sometimes not from physical circumstances not from difficulty not from oppression not from injustice But internally he gives us the way of living and the relationship with him and the promise of eternity that enables us to to overcome rather than to be removed from what is difficult. And the kingdom of God overlaps with the geographical kingdoms. It doesn't replace it. 
And so we invite the kingdom of God into our family life, into our workplace, whenever we say to, to God, be king. And that's an invitation and, an, and, a, and a bowing of the knee that we need to choose. It isn't something that simply happens, and it certainly doesn't happen by force. The kingdom of God is only available to those who say, come. And so we pray, your kingdom come. And we work for his kingdom. And what was clear was it was for all. As Zechariah makes that clear, he says it's for all nations, all nations. That was shocking. Their understanding was the Messiah would only save Israel. But actually it's for all nations, for Jew and Gentile, for Greek and Roman and everybody in between for men and women, for slave and free, for all there is an invitation to receive this new kingdom and this new king and this new salvation. And instead of conquering, it redeems. Instead of throwing out the bruised reed and, and the, the, the smoldering flame are rekindled. And this kingdom of God is about restoration. It's about mercy. It's about a new life. And it's symbolized by the donkey in contrast to the war horse. So the kingdom is brought in by Jesus was to bring peace by changing the individual's heart. He's saying, look, the way we bring peace to a nation that has been dominated by another empire is not to create, overthrow that empire and create war and conflict, but to do something in the heart that enables us to live within the confines that we're in. So some questions to reflect on. What is the salvation that we need? Do we need to be saved back into a relationship with Jesus? Have we lost that? Do we need to be saved from an empty way of life, a self-centered and futile way of living that doesn't fulfill the purposes that God created us for? Do we need to be saved into discipleship, into following? And are our expectations of following Jesus about power or about weakness? Are we willing to embrace a kingdom that is led by a gentle ruler on a donkey? Or are our expectations of God's reign ones of domination, of punishment? And perhaps our expectations are wrong because God is coming with mercy and compassion. And the final question, how are we bringing in this kingdom? As Jesus invites us to participate in the bringing in of the kingdom of God. He invites us to be his disciples in that mission, to bring the reign of Jesus into people's lives, the reign of peace, the reign of salvation. He invites us to be messengers of that good news. So where in the workplace or in the family or in the community or in our church, where are we seeking to bring about the values and lifestyle of of the kingdom of heaven? Where are we bringing in the lordship of Jesus? Where are we trying to encourage obedience to the way of life that God wants? And where are we modeling that? Let's pray together. 
Lord, thank you that you don't come with aggression. You come with humility. You don't come with pomp and ceremony and power and domination, but you come with an invitation and, and you come quietly. And you offer us eternal life and you offer us a relationship with you and you offer us a lifestyle that makes a difference. And we choose your kingdom. We choose your kingdom. And may we be instruments of your kingdom coming. May we bring in your rule and reign in our lives, in our homes, in our workplace, in our streets, in our neighborhood. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.